Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan read the paper on uh, Wednesday, January 3rd. Oh, okay. It's been a while. Mm-hmm. Um, we made it through the holidays. We had great holidays. Somewhat quiet. No, I don't know. There's enough kids around and uh, grandkids that... Uh, well, people came and went. Quiet doesn't we, seem the word. People were in and out. Right. But we were. We, we don't boast of uh, going to uh, big celebrations or, uh, you know, large groups of people. But uh, no. there's enough family that things have been pretty lively. Yes. And I will say there was an ongoing theme. I, I would say the holiday season for me started pretty much about Halloween. <laughs> yeah, well... The, that's you know, not to. Christmas holiday, but I mean, boom, 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 boom. Things yeah. were going on. Yeah. You know, whether it was, you know, costumes and trick-or-treating to, well, you know. Thanksgiving. Um, Thanksgiving and everything. And the, the one continuous thread. Yeah. The theme. Yes. Potty training. Ah, oh, Tamsin, please. Uh, it, it really uh, permeated. Yeah. Permeates uh, a good word. All the events. Yes. Well. And, uh, you know, nothing terrible. Uh, but uh, that was a, a concern. It was in the thought was in the air. Let's put it that way. And had to be. And had to be, yes. And and generally, people did well. Yes, but that just to be clear, that's the grandchildren. Nobody else had that problem. The grandchildren. But yeah, so uh, they're still working it out. There we go. I still like uh, to me the classics when I asked uh, Pepper on telephone some months ago, "How's the potty training going?" And she said to me. Very well. <laughs> and her mother's expression in the background was, like, was not one of agreement. <laughs> they have different but perspectives. She knew, she knew what yeah. the appropriate answer should be. Yeah. They, well, I don't know. She, they, was, she was not going to say, they no, were experiencing it's a disaster. It, they were experiencing it differently. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's all it was. So, you know, not to say we didn't get out. We actually saw a bunch of movies. So we have to we have we to report on a bunch it. of movies. We also went to a bunch of restaurants. So we've been eating and uh, yeah, you know. But with the thinking. movies worth more talking about. The restaurants we've been pretty local, I think. Local, yeah. Um, we went to some others, you know, uh, in the city, I guess. But in any event, um, yeah, because Sadie was in town, we right. got out a little bit. Yeah, you know, we we had been somewhat hunkered down. Right. And we tend to go to our regulars. So you need people to visit you and say... Go right, someplace else. Yeah, let's go someplace else. Right, right, right. And so we did some of that. Yes, but uh, that would be of no interest to anybody unless they lived in the immediate area. But in terms of films... Oh, we're not doing restaurant reviews? You go, you go ahead. No, I'm just... I'm kidding. I'm kidding. All right. So here are the... Let's start with the movie. We've got to get started here. We saw... First of all, we saw Maestro. Maestro being, of course, the movie... That's uh, focused in large part on Leonard Bernstein, but but uh, written uh, at least nominally from the perspective of his wife, who's Felicia. Well, with a focus on his wife. Yes, I'm going to try to pronounce her last name, Felicia Montalegre, uh, who was uh, an actress of some success, not not a well known actress by any means, uh, perhaps better known for being married to Leonard Bernstein. And uh, it's originally from her Costa Rica. From Costa Rica. Yeah, originally from Costa Rica, um, but uh, spent uh, time in all kinds of schools and finishing schools and whatever. And um, uh, obviously, very wealthy family uh, and a very strong family background of that sort. Um, and and you know, her uh, 
she got on Broadway once or twice. She was friends with Mike Nichols. He cast her in something on Broadway. She was in uh, some of the more prestigious uh, television dramas of the time, like Playhouse uh, 21. Well, let's make this clear, though. None of this was in the movie. No, none of this was in okay, the movie. A little not, bit. It didn't tell her life story. Yeah, look, the movie's about Lenny. Not remotely. It was about their relationship. Yeah, right, yes. Well, I, we can talk about what it was about. But uh, the, a large focus, and a large... Maestro was Leonard Bernstein. Let's, let's start with that. Right. And Leonard Bernstein is played by Bradley Cooper, who also directed the movie. Right. And uh, it's got quite a bit of publicity. It's no secret. Everybody's aware of this film. And uh, and yet I hadn't done much uh, reading about it beforehand. I just knew that it had gotten a lot of positive buzz. Uh, and I was struck by how arty the movie is. I mean, it's it's not your standard biopic by any means. Right. It's not, in many ways, it's not shot like a conventional film. The first half's in black and white. There are dance sequences that I'm going to say are surreal, and you're going to tell me that's not what surreal really means. But uh, but th- th- let's just say they're not realistic. And, and they're interweaving uh, information about uh, the couple's relationship with the music that he's writing for Broadway shows at the time and even classical music at the time. And of course, you know, I, we won't dwell on this because I think most people know this, although it's a little out of date, but Leonard Bernstein, at least when we were growing up, was the genius genius. You know, he was, uh, if there was any name that was associated with music, particularly classical music in the United States, was Leonard Bernstein. He was world famous, certainly one of the most famous people in the United States, instantly right. recognizable and a pop culture figure uh, through his young people's concerts and writing uh, music for West Side Story and Candide uh, and uh, On the Town, A Wonderful Town, and he, but also writing some classical music like Mass and being the conductor of the New York Philharmonic. So, you know, a big deal, a huge deal. Yeah, and a, and an interesting character. He yeah. was he was a household right name. So it's tough uh, to capture. Can I just say I didn't? No, go, go I jump was, in. Um, I can't remember when I didn't always know he wrote West Side Story. Okay. Well, so what, I mean, I mean, I just thought of him as a. You were three or four years I, old when it came out, so <laughs> it's not no, your responsibility. I, yeah, but I, I remember being shocked. I mean, was, really, he he could write stuff like that, right? You know. Um, just throwing that in there. Well, he, but that's part of the point. The part of the point was that he had one foot in the classical music world in a way that no other American was identified with the classical music world and the other foot in, in writing uh, shows, mm-hmm. uh, which the, the movie does bring up. And in, in some, and you see the classical people kind of dismissing his efforts uh, in terms of the Broadway shows. And he's wrestling with what's really more important, conducting the Philharmonic or, uh, you know, writing a wonderful town. Um, but he wrote fantastic music for Broadway shows. I mean, West Side Story, even now, if you just, you know, ask me quickly what's the, the best music in any musical show, uh, it's probably West Side Story. I mean, or it's... Hard to... I always think that because no matter when it comes on, yeah. it just kind of stirs you in a way. Yeah. I mean, we must have listened to it a million times, yeah. maybe a zillion and it always kind of plucks at your heartstrings. I mean, it comes alive in a way that sound of music, you know, does not. Yeah. It's it's really the orchestrations, et cetera, right. the complexity, and it's just... Uh, you can listen to West Side Story right. without any words. Right. In a way right. that that's not true of any other I Broadway think that's, show. I think that's true. And yeah, yeah and not- which makes it feel like classical music almost. Yeah, uh, and the same is true to some degree of Candide. So, um, 
Yeah. So in any event, uh, let's get back to the movie. And I've said too much. What do you think of the movie? I thought it was fine. It didn't rock my world. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, having said that, I'm not sure why I only thought it was fine. But it. Yeah, I, but I don't disagree with you. I think if you had asked me, I came out with the same feeling. But if you had asked me what I thought of the movie 15 minutes before it ended, I would have said really, really good, maybe great. Oh, and, and okay. And then the yeah. last 15 minutes, we're going well. What? And, and it's not like. There was an event that was off-putting. It was more like it became a very conventional nothing move over the last 15 minutes. And, and I, I think that's right. I think you put your finger on it. Uh, it just kind of tried to wrap some things up with a bow yeah. and give it a semi-happy ending, uh, bring bring them back together right. kind of thing. You know, it does... The, the movie really focuses on the ins and outs of their relationship. And, uh, the, you know, her... Um, you know, seeming acceptance uh, of her husband's sexuality. Homosexuality. Homosexuality. Well, or bisexuality, however. Or whatever his sexuality was. I yeah. mean, she, um, you know, wrote about being, you know, she understood. Yeah. Uh, and yet, uh, you know, uh, I think uh, she was not... Uh, as favorable about his morality, yeah. I think is what it came down yeah. to. Yeah, well, well, you know what it was? You know. I think she was accepting. They make the point that she knew that he was bisexual, let's say, when, when they got married. Uh, but on the other hand, I don't think she bought into his promiscuity. How about that? Right. I think that's true. I uh, think that's a good way to sum it up. Yeah, but I think the other problem they had in terms of the movie making and the reason why the last 15 minutes fall so flat and you leave the theater with much less of a high than you might otherwise, is because of the difficulty of framing it about the couple and about their relationship, and particularly to her perspective to some degree on their relationship. When the fact of the matter is, when the movie's about him, it's fascinating. When the movie's about her, good person, bad person, that's not what I'm talking about, it's not fascinating because she's not the figure he is. So by trying to get a unique twist on it and saying we're writing it from the perspective of the couples, particularly her perspective, uh, that causes them to veer off the Lenny Bernstein story. Mm-hmm. And then you're going, well, why am I watching this uh, mm-hmm. particularly? So I think that's the problem they have. But that that's a problem. It's going to come up in another movie we saw in just a minute. Uh, so uh, anyway, I, but and yet there's so many moments in it that are quite good. I recommend it. And, and I'll say this. Bradley Cooper's great. Yes, yes. He was a stunning character. Right, he, he, yeah, I'm, I'm not talking about the directing. The directing's fine. I don't know enough about that. But uh, in terms of acting, yeah, it's not like I'm a Bradley Cooper fanboy. He was unbelievably good. Yeah, yeah. I would say that. Astonishing. But so, so far, I mean, it's hard to get a feel for exactly how successful it is. Yeah. It seems like it didn't have much of a box office right. at all. Yeah. Like, and I haven't been able to get really... Uh, up to date numbers, yeah. but uh, you know it's it's so confusing. Woefully, with, with streaming, it's so yeah. confusing. But I don't I don't think it, it had much box office. Right, and what we were talking about was uh, whether anybody remembers Leonard Bernstein. Remembers well, Leonard, whether anybody whether under enough. the age of sixty remembers <laughs> right, Leonard Bernstein. Right. Yeah, which is possible, possibly not. And in fact, the New York Times published a little article: uh, "What You Need to Know." Yeah. Um, 
and explaining who Leonard Bernstein was, which is and if, why he would. If, if you're of a certain age, it's remarkable you know? that someone would write something. Like right, that. right. And we'll come back to that idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At, there's, at a yeah. There's no yeah. figure in contemporary culture, in my mind, that compares with Leonard Bernstein. But that's just telling you that, that says much about yeah. me as an. It just else. it was a shock to me to think, oh, yeah, maybe people don't. Yeah. know who that yeah, is, right. you know, right. or what he looks like. And, and uh, in fact, we saw him once, I guess. Yeah, we saw him in... Uh, we saw him in Milan. Yeah. We lucked into a an open rehearsal. Yeah. And um, he was actually playing music yeah. by Aaron Copeland, yeah. which you find out um, in the movie mm. he actually had a relationship with. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, anyway, it was... Uh, you know, very exciting yeah, to so see we, him we were in, in Milan the, at La Scala. At La Scala. That's at, the kind for, of people we are. For free. We saw for Leonard free. Bernstein at a rehearsal we happened to drop in La Scala. By, we walking around. I was wearing gym shorts. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we were underdressed. Yeah. And they just uh, said, yeah, you want to come ignorant. in? Rehearsal. And, uh, and he was, you know, he was there. He was actively talking to the orchestra in Italian. And he was fluent in Italian, blah, 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 blah. and he would push him, and he would, he would laugh with maybe him. Would, maybe that was Yiddish. I don't really. I, I know enough but, that it wasn't Yiddish. It could okay. have been Greek, but it wasn't uh, Yiddish. Yeah, look, so that was exciting. I mean, you know, I can't. As I said, I can't think of a figure. I mean, he was at that time. I think it's fair to say a bigger figure than Stephen Sondheim was here. I mean, I'm not saying he was. Oh a, yeah. I'm not saying Sondheim was in the greater yeah. talent. I'm just saying in terms of figure, this is this is huge. He was huge, huge. Well, yeah. I mean, he was. Yeah. Anyway, all right. So then, then the next movie we saw was the boys in the boat, and we full disclosure. So I rode uh, crew in college, and then that's the and boys. Sadie in, rode crew in high school, and Granger rode crew. Well, I mean, well, he wasn't with us. Okay, the three of us. us that went to the movie right. together. Right. I was there with two rowers. That's right. You were there with two rowers. I have once been in a shell. I think. Okay. Well, that's about it. You've never been in a shell. You've been out of your shell for a long time. But my my point my point is. No, I remember I went to that thing at uh, the Schuylkill River. Figure of speech, dear. Figure of speech. My my point is that uh, I am. Uh, if there's an audience for this film, it's me. Okay. Because it's a story of this uh, crew which faced a lot of challenges at the University of Washington in the 1930s and a bunch of kids who were kind of, uh, well, were economically challenged, in particular the main character. And they come together and they put together this winning boat. And it's uh, their triumph and travails, but really triumph. Uh, and uh, it's directed by George Clooney. And, and I read the book and you read the book. And the book was really good. Right, and we knew many people yeah. who had nothing to do with rowing who read the book. Yeah. And they would immediately tell you, you know, and they would mention it to you. Yeah. Um, but it was it was very popular and it's interesting even if you don't row. Right. We can't say that about the movie. Well, you can't say it because again, <laughs> I like the movie, but I'm I'm the guy. They made the movie for me. Uh, well, yeah, but even the story they you know they had to streamline it. Yeah, they it, left out a lot of it's character a little, development. I will say it's a little bland. Um, and it's just like you know, they overcome adversity and win. They overcome adversity and win. They overcome adversity and win. Right. I mean, you know, there's no suspense. You know, they're going to yeah. prevail. And it's not clear why they're prevailing, except you know that virtue triumphs or something. And uh, but, you know, it's beautifully shot. The rowing scenes are very well done. Uh, the actors are quite capable. Uh, Clooney is uh, at least a capable director. 
Uh, and the funny thing about the movie is it got very poor critical reception at the outset, particularly on Rotten Tomatoes. And you say, well, this movie's going to tank like crazy. It got like it was, yeah, 50% like, or so. No, it was 43%. Yeah, well, that, that eventually <laughs> went up for the critics to 54%. Mm-hmm. And then when they released it after the first weekend, they finally had an audience score. And the audience score approval rating was 97%. Uh, which is yeah, but we really don't know who no, was no, in the but, audience. But but there's people are starting to write about it now. In other okay. words, they're comparing it to um, the color purple, where it was critically well received, eighty five percent critics, not super, but high. And they said, and then when the audience came in, that was at like a ninety four percent, and this is ninety seven percent. So what's going on? So does it have legs? Will it do well? It, it's it's made more money in some ways than they thought it would, mm-hmm. but it's not a huge success. But on the other hand. This is when they decided we're going to keep it in theater a few more weeks or send it straight to Netflix. And they're keeping it in theaters right now. So I don't know what's going to happen. I don't care what money people make, but I'm just wondering how well it's being received. 97% may mean something and it may not, but it could mean there are people who don't have any interest in rowing who are enjoying the movies. I, enjoying the movie. I don't know. I can't tell. It is, you know, like Secretariat. It's a little bit of a, you know, Disney movie-ish, you know, yeah. overcoming odds, feel-good story. I think it's a little more than that. But uh, I'm not saying it's a great movie. Uh, I liked it, but, you know, I'm just okay. uh, the target audience. So then we saw American Symphony. Well, before that, actually, yeah. we saw Seven Fishes. No, but I'm going to come back to that. Okay. okay, I want to talk about American Symphony first. Okay. Okay, American Symphony, and we saw that, and you chose that. You get full credit for that. You said, let's watch this. Uh, I forget what the streaming service was. And we watched this with uh, Granger and Nico. And... Uh, that is focused on John Baptiste uh, and his wife, uh, Sulika Joad. And um, it's uh, a documentary uh, in which, uh, well, maybe you should describe it. You, you can probably describe it better. Well, it just focuses on a period of their life when she had, um, she had been in remission from cancer and the cancer had uh, come back or whatever. Mm-hmm. And she was about to go uh, for a bone marrow transplant. Mm-hmm. So she was facing this enormous uh, challenge, crisis, um, physically and emotionally. And while uh, Jean-Baptiste uh, was um, preparing for the debut of a piece he was writing, I think the piece is called The American Symphony, yeah. isn't it? Um uh, that was going to debut in, in Carnegie Hall. Now he's a a known pop guy, yeah. Um, but uh, you you know you of course learn in the course of the film that he had uh, a very thorough uh, classical musical right. uh, education, and he went to Juilliard. Yeah. And uh, you know his family goes, uh, I guess, way back in music in mm-hmm. uh, New Orleans, etc. That background, and but he is, you know, facing the emotional crisis and challenge of his wife going through her ordeal, and uh, you know, putting together this um, music mm-hmm. uh, for his. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, you, 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 you fairly described the narrative arc, but it, to me, it, the juxtaposition is really her uh, suffering through these difficult treatments at the same time that he's being celebrated for his very successful pop music, which is occupying as much as anything the time on the screen showing his getting awards and his performing this or that and his being with Colbert. And then to put a pin on it, 
to give it a narrative arc, they say, and he's writing this American symphony. Um, so that gives a narrative arc because it culminates in the performance of this yeah, American symphony. It wasn't symphony. just that. It was, you know, how do you concentrate? How do you, how do, yeah. you do your work when your um, family is in a challenge like that? Yeah. 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 Well, that's clearly no, one of the was, things going on. It's not an easy thing. I mean, they choose just before she has. She goes into the hospital to get married. Yeah, they had been together for quite a, a long time. Yeah, while and uh, but they choose to actually get married yeah. just before she goes in for the the treatment. I mean, it, look, it's, it's interesting. I, I first of all I enjoyed the movie, uh, and I think we all did. You the know movie. anything about him at all, or I, I didn't know as much. As, I knew he was with Colbert, and I knew he had won all these Grammy awards. I'd never listened to his music. And or saw him dance. And I mean, saw him dance. Yes. And, and, and the music could, that I saw, I'm still not familiar with it. And there's, and I, I, there's no drawing a line between that and the classical music. Although the fact of the matter is, um, I don't know there's that much to his classical music, to be perfectly frank. I know it gave... Uh, well, that's narrative. always the challenge. That was one of the challenges <laughs> in Maestro as well. Well, but see, that's the thing. You know... His he was so conflicted. It wasn't just about his sexuality, yeah. but there was this, uh, you know, kind of underlying thing: is he a great composer well, or is he? But the other, to me, the other comparison to Maestro is this: um, in both cases, it's a juxtaposition to some degree of uh, the musician, the successful musicians, the celebrated musician's life, and his wife, and. Uh, in Maestro, I don't know, think they ever resolved that in a way that it was they told a compelling story or as compelling as it might have been. Because you're saying, so let's just hear more about Lenny. In this, um, I think they're a little more successful here in balancing the two of them. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, I know I read from some critics, some critics found the juxtaposition unsettling mm-hmm. because they're saying, well, what are we doing here? I mean, he's, he's just being congratulated for this or that, and she's in the hospital. And uh, so what are we supposed to gain from this juxtaposition of these two lives? That he's a great guy because he's working with her while he's pursuing his his other... They don't go together too much. Mm-hmm. It's almost like two different mm-hmm. stories. And uh, I, you don't have to justify it. It's a documentary. It's a slice of life. So I don't think any justification is really necessary. But you it's hard to really put them together. You didn't read anything. I didn't research it at all. Yeah. Um, so I don't even know why anybody chose to do it. it just uh, uh, I don't know why I read about the guy who's a documentary about. filmmaker. Yeah. Uh, a guy named Matthew Heineman, um, who uh, uh, I just know this. They didn't tell you the stuff. His, his father is Ben Heineman, who was a very, very well-known lawyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. was the of most course. famous lawyer in the world right. 25, 30 years ago. Um who kind of, you know, went to Dartmouth and uh, he didn't get into Teach for America, so he decided to become a filmmaker. And this is his, like, eighth or ninth documentary, and this is the first one that's getting mm-hmm. whatever. Uh, I don't know why he chose it. He was just looking for a project. It was interesting how much access he got. I mean, he's in, they're in scenes in the bedroom. And, mm-hmm. I, mean, I don't know. I don't mm-hmm. know how they worked that out, but they did. And it's very well done. But um, I know you and... and and even Granger and Nico, I remember talking to Granger in particular, saying he thought uh, that um, they came across, or certain Batiste came across as almost a little too polished, a little too, you know, this is good for the cameras. Um, I don't know. It, it, it's an odd thing, but uh, it, I, clearly worth seeing. Clearly oh, yeah. worth seeing. Yeah. And, and there were actual scenes. Uh, they... Um... 
or hunkered down in uh, our area, Frenchtown. up in Frenchtown area, right? Uh, for part of the time, there were so, scenes that were clearly shot in that for, area. Yeah, so we got an extra charge yeah, out of that. It's got to see yes, a and, bridge that we know, and we know <laughs> we know the woman who owned the. Uh, well, we, we should give a shout out here to Julie, who had Love and Oven. Uh, well, they were using a studio right. near Love and Oven. And so they were there with uh, you know, coming by for lunch at Julie's place yeah. while they were doing all this writing cool and stuff. How cool is that? Yeah, yeah, Julie Klein. But, uh, so there you go. All right, and finally, I know you want to get to Seven Fishes. Seven Fishes. Uh, the Feast of the Seven Fishes. Another movie you found. You were on a tear here. I don't even... It's Well, in the previous podcast, yeah. we talked about it had been recommended yeah. um, in an article about yeah. the Feast of the Seven Fishes, making seven fishes, yeah. the Italian-American tradition of uh, having all these different fish dishes yeah. the, on Christmas Eve. And uh, so we did, in fact, uh, dial up. The movie, yeah. which was made in like 2018 or yes, something. Yes, it is 2018. Yeah, and uh, and it was very good. Right, it was. It, you know, it was uh, a much milder take on the celebration or the preparation than the episode of the bear. Right. Um, you know, but uh, it was great. It was. It was kind of a. Um, what would you call it? It's like a slice of life uh, well, in a... Yeah, but it's a movie. It's not a, it's not a documentary. And it's, it's a story of an Italian family on the Italian-American West family. Virginia, Pittsburgh border, who lives in kind of a blue-collar life and uh, how they celebrate uh, seven fishes by making the seven fishes and the, the, how the family interacts with right. each other. It's really about the family interaction. interaction. Well, that, but, and that's what you've got. The, the, it was the preparing the Feast of the Seven Fishes that was more important than actually eating the Feast of the Seven Fishes. Right. Everyone had their role. And I, you know, it's directed by a guy named Robert Tunnell, who I never heard of. There were a bunch of actors I never heard of, except one a woman named Lynn Cohen, who's actually <laughs> kind of seen... Uh, not quite met in person because we've seen her at theater events and people and we'd say who this older woman why are people lining up to talk to her and they say it's Lynn Cohen we say who the heck is Lynn Cohen she's been in things and she was in this and she was uh, quite good she had a real career she passed away recently well she was a key she was a character in Sex and the City everybody knew oh, her oh yes from everybody that. knew her from that that's okay. true that's, she's an older woman so um, yeah so it was funny that um She's great. She's the right. grandmother at one point who puts a you know a hex on somebody, but uh, she's quite good. She's quite good. So she's... if you're looking for a um, another sort of yeah. holiday classic, yeah, um, that's a nice one. Yeah, it's very yeah, but it, 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 nice is, doesn't give it as much credit, much of its due. It's, it, does, it's, it doesn't make it sound like it's it it, it's a little it more hardcore. Yeah, hard, it's a real. Oh, oh, oh. Hard factually based, and it's real. It's very real. Um, Characters are very real, right? Right. All right. So you. But, are... but on the other end of the spectrum, again, you <laughs> what? I read an article about uh, something called Cine Panettone. Oh, Italian, yes. And uh, that is, uh, it all comes out of uh, a movie that was made in 1983, um, and. Uh, it was, uh, it's called Christmas Holiday, or Vacanze uh, de Natale. Uh-huh. And uh, um, it's a raucous, vulgar um, movie that takes place in a 
ski lodge. Yeah. Okay. And uh, in the town of Cortina d'Ampezzo. Yeah. And it's about, you know, the wealthy people from Milan and Rome, yeah. you know, interacting, uh, committing adultery. You know, just it's, it's, uh, there's a lot, it's vulgar. It's awful. And people love it. Okay. In fact, it's so, uh, you know, what do you call it? On the edge or it, it, it's not like it's one of those movies you can, uh, that was ever deemed possible to bring it to the U.S. Yeah. Okay. Because it was just two, two. Okay. Um, and yet it inspired many sort of sequels. Mm-hmm. Okay. There, there was, you know, uh, Christmas holiday, 1983, then there was 91, then there yeah. was, you know, and went on for years and years and years, and then went on to various locations a Christmas holiday in the Nile, on the Nile, mm-hmm. a Christmas holiday in the Beverly Hills, etc. And uh, some of them are, you know, they're awful. But, you but know? the point is, it has a huge following. Has a huge following. They had some kind of celebration for the 40th anniversary yeah. uh, recently. Mm-hmm. And people sing along. People love it. I mean, it died out at a certain point. And uh, uh, all the excitement, yeah. which was maybe so. at least ten years ago, um, and it was there's it's so politically incorrect so, every okay, moment. Let of me it. let me ask yeah. you this question: Are you planning? And let me tell you who made it: who um, made? Aurelio De Laurentiis. Okay. Who the name sounds familiar, right? Dino De Laurentiis. Right, it's his nephew. Okay. Okay, cousin of Giada. The chef, the cook, oh. the TV chef. Yeah, I don't know anything about that. That is very popular. Okay. Um, so, um, anyway, uh, it just, it's funny because, I mean, it just cracked me up, the idea. Because, of course, the first thing I'm doing is seeing the article and I'm going, ooh, you know, maybe uh, maybe we want to watch that. Uh, well, that's what, that was going to be my question. I no, mean, uh, no, I don't think you can what? watch it. No, you think it's not allowed? want to. It's illegal? No. No, I, it's illegal in the sense that uh, too risque. It, no, you would just um, what? It would it would not be fun. It would not. Oh, you don't think so? Fun. You don't think no. it would be funny? No, I, I don't. I just think uh, okay. it would be such a disappointment. It wouldn't be like watching uh, Bouche, La Bouche. Okay. Well, the, the French holiday. Well, that's movie a different that kind love. of thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, that was a good movie, right? Yeah. Didn't you like that? Yeah. Okay. Um, so anyway, so anyway, it cracks you up. It's also interesting to me that uh, even in this day and age, there are things that only work in a particular culture, in a particular context. Yeah. We are not one big mishmash. Mm-hmm. Um, and Chinipatone. Uh, well, talking about particular context, there was an article in the Times called Luxury of the Past, Prime Rib is Still What's for Dinner. And it was on the first page of the Times. And they said when holiday celebrations come around in particular, there's a substantial portion of the population which says it has to be prime rib. And uh, they tell the story of uh, prime rib being part of American culture, uh, in particular in the Midwest, uh, starting with the post-war period when the rationing of meat was lifted. And it became uh, celebrated as the luxury slash male, you know, food. I mean, that, that's what they say in the article, that it was uh, somehow associated with with men. And, well, the article uh, starts out with a restaurant uh, in Chicago. that's doing that in Chicago. It's a supper that's club. doing yeah. that now, a supper club. Yeah. That, and and uh, it's popular. 
Right. It's popular. Isn't that shocking? I don't know. Well, let's start at the beginning, okay? First of all, they say it was hugely popular in the uh, in the post-war period, right up until yeah, the 1970s. Yeah, I'm willing to believe that people were eating prime rib like crazy. Right. I mean, now, how many times did you go, you're growing up and you went to any kind of restaurant yeah. or hotel buffet and they said, and they have prime well, rib. Well, let me answer the question. Which I never cared about. I was just going to say the answer is never. I never saw that. But you may have oh, seen no. it. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. I, well, where I was, then, that wasn't it. But, uh, and I remember having prime rib once in my life, and my mother made it. It was very good, but it was expensive. Well, you were the grandson of a butcher. But uh, you, well, I'm, sure, I'm sure, we'll ask Bob, because I'm sure you all went <laughs> no, places no, where you had, you had to go to bar mitzvahs where somebody is carving oh, in prime rib. Oh, that could be. That okay. could be. But, you know, you want to know the but truth? you're not going, I didn't it go was to more these likely, kind of restaurants. Was, My family didn't go to these kind of restaurants. It was really carving a corned beef, honestly. No, and, they weren't, Daniel. No, no, but, no. But here's, here's my point. They, in this article, at least, they associate prime rib with the holidays slash Christmas. Because it's it's an extravagance. But we didn't, when we didn't, I we went didn't have to that the focus. Shop right, okay, we I went to the shop right two yeah. weeks ago yes. and saw a right. prime rib rack of ribs. Right. Okay, rib roast, whatever right. you want to call it. In their case, crown rib. For no, it wasn't. It wasn't done into a crab. It okay. was a crown. It was uh, right. out flat. But it was two hundred and ninety three dollars. Yes, right, right. At the Shoprite. Right. The Shoprite is not a gourmet fancy place. Right. They talk about here. This is the thing. This is the thing. It's not like going out and buying a Maserati. <laughs> okay. No. All right. It's an it's an affordable luxury. You can right. s- scrape together. You know, even a few hundred dollars to be a big shot on Christmas. Well, that's what they say. Okay? That's what they say. Although it has gone up quite a bit. Whatever it cost in 1970, they do contrast the prices. And they say, look, even adjusting for inflation, the price has gone through the roof. The price of meat has gone up that quite a bit. That is absolutely true. And they, they, you know what they use as an example of that? To prove to you that the price of meat has gone up. They say, remember the opening sequence of the Mary Tyler Moore show? where Mary Richards is in the supermarket and she looks at a label of a meat package and you know, rolls her eyes before putting it in the basket, that tells you the price of meat was going up. <laughs> I'm saying, really? That's how you know? But in any event, it's gone up many, many times. But here's times. the funny thing. Yeah. How can this be popular? Why, Today, why we're all about eating, you know, um, impossible burgers. Yeah. Where the doctors are well, that's not constantly true, yeah. saying, um, you know, don't eat red meat. I, I have... Almost everyone we know says, yeah, I don't eat red meat. Right. You know, I rarely eat red well, meat. Well, there's an answer to this. And so it's, it's just shocking to me that somewhere people are still saying, yeah, no. bring it no, on. No, no, because, because they're saying it's a holiday splurge, both in terms of calories, but in terms of health and in terms of money. People focus on it. Prime rib means holidays to people. And they to sell most people, of it in December. No, but a lot of people still don't. Uh, to I know plenty of people who think uh, red meat is you know disgusting. Well, they those wouldn't are not be interested at all. They're not eating. They'll it. find other ways. There's plenty of other people who are like that. Believe me, it doesn't seem like an interesting. Yeah, if I were you, I'd pump the brakes on the Impossible Burgers. Some people are buying it, but it's not nearly as many as are buying I prime don't think, rib. I just I'm amazed and maybe a little impressed that yeah. somewhere people are still yeah. thinking. Red meat is a cool thing. Well, it's, I'm not surprised. I don't have a problem with it. I just, no. I just feel like, in general, people are off the red meat wagon. That's not true. 
Obviously not. <laughs> no. Obviously not. If you can have a whole no. restaurant dedicated to it. Yeah. That's not true. So in any event, uh, so you've been... Speaking of things that are going out of fashion or disappearing, there was an interesting op-ed piece that I enjoyed about um, the Elfstaden talk. I'm making up that pronunciation because there's nothing harder than speaking Dutch, I don't think. And I have no idea how to really pronounce this word, yeah. Elfstein talk, yeah. which is the eleven uh, city race, right? Okay, skate, um, and it happens. It's been happening uh, since the early twentieth century, uh, where when it's cold enough, yeah. uh, there is an event called the Elfstein talk, mm-hmm. uh, and it's a race. 120 miles mm-hmm. um, through all these, through frozen canals, rivers, and lakes mm-hmm. uh, in uh, the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, it's happened, it's occurred, it has, it has, you know, it's a race, but it's also a um, tour. Mm-hmm. So you, you, they get up to like 16,000 participants. Right. Um, and it's happened 15 times. Mm-hmm. In the last uh, hundred and some years. Um, and uh, it hasn't happened for 26 years. Right. So there's a chance that it will not ever happen again. Mm-hmm. That it may be over. Mm-hmm. It may have disappeared. The ice has to be at least six inches thick. Mm-hmm. And uh, it hasn't been cold enough. Mm-hmm. For a while. Now, back in 1963, I think it was, Mm -hmm. it was so cold, Mm -hmm. they actually, um, only a a fraction of the people Mm -hmm. finished. Mm -hmm. Keep going. And so so even as, I mean, 1963 seems like yesterday to me, but... um, the idea that uh, we're already in a period, even after 1963, they didn't have the race for 22 years. Right. Okay. And then they, you know, uh, had it again in the 80s, but it hasn't happened since the 90s. Yeah. Look, certain canals are frozen, certain ones haven't, so they haven't been able to go the whole route. And uh, yeah, uh, maybe it's warmer. But there's something very sad about that. There's something, mm-hmm. you know, the idea of something kind of. Uh, Something has ended. Something has disappeared. Yeah. Out of culture. Yeah. It won't come back. It's slipped away. Mm-hmm. Um, if we had been more aware about climate change or done certain things, could we have saved it? Or, you know, and I feel like that's the way with a lot of things in my life at the moment. Really? You know, things have slipped away. Things you didn't know were going. Just aren't there. Well, that's anymore. a bigger theme than climate change. I mean, and that's what made this article to me yeah. poignant. Not even about climate change or this particular well, race, change. but it's the changed. idea, or but even you know, Leonard Bernstein. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> he slipped away. Yeah, you know, something you know, things that we thought were uh, touchstones mm-hmm. um, are gone, mm-hmm. and uh, so that's something. I know you want me to talk about. The Octopus Book. Yes. And uh, so I 
went online uh, earlier this week, mm-hmm. and uh, there's a big article about the book. What's it called? Remarkably right? Bright Creatures. Yes, Remarkably Bright Creatures. Written by Shelby Van Pelt. Right. Okay, which I just listened to. I had happened to just listen to on Audible. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was good. It was entertaining. The octopus, it's about a, a relationship between mm-hmm. a, a woman who's working in her old age, mm-hmm. um, you know, partly just to have something to do. She's the house cleaner, or mm-hmm. the cleaning woman at a, a um, aquarium. Mm-hmm. And she gets friendly with an octopus. Yes, as okay. one does, right. Um, you know, it's it's not like it's an animated feature where they're talking to each other or, mm-hmm. or something. But, uh, you know, it's it's fantastical. There's no question about that. Michael Yuri narrates the octopus part. And mm-hmm. he's quite good. I mm-hmm. thought he was just a goofball, mm-hmm. you know, because he plays these nutty, crazy characters mm-hmm. on things like Ugly Betty. Um, and he was quite good. Mm-hmm. It turned out to be an enjoyable listen mm-hmm. okay i'm not saying it's great literature anyway it's this article is about how it's kind of caused a ruckus it came out in the spring of 2022 mm-hmm. it had a flurry of interest and activity it was very exciting and then it seemed to fade away and then it started to roll back mm-hmm. and now in 2023 it's more popular than ever it's back on the bestsellers list and people come in and ask for it well you know um that do octopus you, do you have that octopus that book? octopus book. As a matter of fact the, the author is interviewed and she says you know if i knew this was going to happen i would have called it that octopus book right <laughs> that's what people call it but it, you know it it's enjoyable i will say that and the reason i listened to it you know mm-hmm. um was number one it got like five stars yeah uh, on the Audible mm-hmm. reviews recommendations, mm-hmm. and uh, so that's something, yeah. you know, and uh, and and some of the comments did say uh, Michael Urie was quite good. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you have a good narration and you have such an overwhelming delight yeah. in the book, even though it seemed improbable, I was not attracted to the story at all, as usual. Um, it was fun. Well, but, but but just to be clear, the article was not about the Audible version. The article was about no, the book. No, And the book is selling, and they haven't even put it out in paperback yet, and it's still sold an enormous amount of copies. Yeah. So it's crazy. And she's just saying, yeah, you know, she was just the person, this is her first novel, I think. Uh, it's crazy. Yeah. I, I, I'm not saying it's a great book. Well, you can you enjoy no, it. I, I highly enjoyed it, but there are times when you're saying, "Well, that doesn't really follow." No one would do that, or no one would not do that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it just some of it is just uh, beyond the willing suspension of disbelief. Okay, so the author's name again? Shelby Van Pelt. Remarkably bright creatures. Okay. All right. So finally, let's just. Uh, I had something I can skip it because well, I'll come back to it another day. Why don't you finish with uh, the. I know you're busy, but well, this is a very small story, and you're not so excited about it. I can tell you. <laughs> I can tell that that's not important. But uh, you know, we we often uh, cover an obituary, and a woman in Ireland passed away, Maureen Flavin Sweeney, and uh, she was the 
she was responsible for, she was a postal clerk, okay, in Ireland on the coast, like the Northwest coast. All right. And she worked as a postal clerk and part of her responsibility was they, the post office was also a um, weather station Mm -hmm. and she had to do various, you know, weather meteorological readings and send them in to whatever the weather headquarters was in England. Mm. And her readings became very crucial during World War II. She took the job in 1942 on her birthday, June 3rd in 1944. People were getting very excited about the readings at this location. She was doing them, you know, they used to do them once a day. This was up to once an hour. Right. Okay. And uh, so this was the sort of farthest west location for the continent. Mm -hmm. And of course, in June of 44, the Allies are preparing for the Normandy invasion. Mm -hmm. And on June 3rd, she records a significant drop in barometric pressure, saying a big storm was coming. Mm -hmm. And what they needed for the invasion to be a success was they had planned it for this date, June 5th, Mm -hmm. okay? Um, And they needed a full moon. They needed low tide. They needed, uh, you know, clear skies, Mm -hmm. no clouds, and, you know, smooth water. And it was obvious by these readings, the meteorologist, she was not making these determinations. She was just, you know, handing in the data. And uh, headquarters got very excited, went back to her, are you sure about this? They double-checked, yes, we're sure. A big storm was coming. But also somehow they were able to ascertain that the day after um, would be... Uh, would have all the qualities they needed to do the invasion because for some reason the um, everything wouldn't line up again for at least another month Mm -hmm. and they would lose the element of surprise for the Germans Mm -hmm. and there are people who say because of this uh, you know um, if if she hadn't have warned them it could have been tremendous even worse casualties. Yeah, there were tremendous casualties. Um, it was, but yeah. And uh, it would have set back the war, you know, for at least a year, mm-hmm. uh, something like that. Um, and it just, as the article points out, there are times when ordinary people in the midst of the average day doing their job end up helping to change history. Well, what struck me, what you told me about it, was she didn't even figure out her role in this until many years later. Yeah, she didn't understand how crucial her information was to at least in the 1956 Uh as somebody was uh, kind of examining it and brought it up to her. (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, that was interesting. All right. So uh, that's what we've got. Uh, We have plenty for next time, too. Yeah, and just just get it out of your mind. We are not going to go Google Christmas holiday in Italian. Oh, really? I was no. drawn into that, you know. Uh, all right, no, we're we'll not see. watching that. 
I'll watch it on my own. All right. So until next week, uh, this is Dan Happy. I think you should say something like, and my birthday's coming up. That's what you should say. Well, I was going to say that, and you kind of stepped on my line. Oh, so I'm sorry. We, we'll be very busy this weekend <laughs> because we'll be celebrating, yes. you know, some major milestones. Yes, we're not going to say. Uh, for uh, Mr. Dan Abuhoff. Yes. All right. We'll report on that uh, next week. Until then, this is Dan Abuhoff. And Tamsin Granger with Tamsin, Tamsin and Dan. Read the paper. See ya. <laughs>